0: Hi, it's Amy. Before this episode starts, I want to thank you for listening to How We Survive. This season is coming to an end, and I need to remind you that we are public media. We rely on donations from you to continue doing this kind of rigorous, long-form journalism. Please give generously right now at marketplace.org survive. We've also got a link in the show notes. Now on to the episode. Back in 2017, New Zealand's parliament took a historic vote.
1: We've heard this bill today called revolutionary, unique, and I want to call it extraordinary.
0: Lawmakers were asked to decide whether to give the Vanganui River, the third longest river in the country, a special status.
1: Here today, we recognize a river and its catchment as a legal entity, a legal person.
0: That's right, a legal person. It would be the first river in the world to gain this status. Maori, the indigenous people of New Zealand, had been fighting for the rights of the Vanganui since the 1800s, when British colonizers began settling along the river, exploiting it for industry, and over time polluting the water and harming the wildlife that depended on it personhood would give the river the same rights as people in New Zealand and allow guardians to speak on its behalf.
2: The question is that the motion be agreed to. Those of that opinion will say aye. Aye. To the contrary, no. The ayes have it.
0: The day Parliament passed the law, a group of Maori people were sitting in the chamber, along with lawmakers, and sang a folk song called a waiata in celebration.
3: It was a change moment, a whole catalyst change moment for all of us in New Zealand. I'm incredibly proud of it.
0: Jacinta Ruru is New Zealand's first Maori professor of law. She's at the University of Otago.
3: Where I teach and I research ideas around how our legal systems can be more respectful and accommodating to indigenous peoples. What significance does
0: the river have to Maori people?
3: The people who live alongside that Whanganui River, they talk about, I am the river, the river is me. That whole integral notion that the health and well-being of one's people is intimately linked into the health and well-being of the river. It is who they are.
0: Jacinta says the 2017 law wasn't just about protecting the river. It was a huge step in bridging two very different worldviews.
3: This moment in law completely disrupted that colonial lens of understanding property law, of understanding environmental law, and put at the forefront for all of us as a country a Maori worldview
0: and a Maori legal system. In practice, personhood means the river, through its guardians, can now take polluters or anyone seen as harming the river to court to enforce its rights. The law also provided funding to compensate the local tribe, create a legal framework for the river, and restore its health and well-being. Jacinta says it was the beginning of a much longer process.
3: It will take generations to unravel, undo all of that colonial damage, destruction, because we have to work towards resetting our relationships, our human relationships with this river.
0: Resetting our relationships. I wondered, could that happen for another distressed river on the other side of the world? I'm Amy Scott. Welcome to How We Survive, a podcast from Marketplace about people navigating solutions to a changing climate. This is our final episode of the season, episode eight, The Rights of Rivers. This season, we've been talking a lot about the Colorado River, how it's been carved up and divvied out and fought over, who has rights to use it and who doesn't. But what about the rights of the river itself? For this final episode of the season, we're gonna look at a big picture solution. Because there's a growing movement rooted in indigenous values to give a legal voice to nature, to creeks, fish, crops, and trees. It's known as rights of nature. This episode, we're asking, Could we follow New Zealand's lead and give the Colorado River the same rights and protections as people and corporations have in our country? And what would that mean for the river and those of us who depend on it? To find out how rights of nature might work for the Colorado River, I wanted to talk to the guy who actually tried it. So before we dive in, I want to ask about your email signature, which, as a Gen Xer, I love. Uh, from Jeff Spicoli, <laughs> tell me about that. Yeah, sure.
4: I mean, well, I love. I think Fast Times at Ridgemont High is, is uh, like not just like a, a cult classic, but is a classic as a commentary on the United States.
0: Jason Flores Williams is a lawyer who works on environmental and civil rights cases, and his email signature says a lot about his style. It's a quote from Sean Penn's character in the 1982 movie Fast Times at Ridgemont High.
4: He references and, like, summarizing, like, you know, the American Revolution, the Thomas Jefferson quote, where he says, you know... What Jefferson was saying was, hey, you know, we left this England place because it was bogus. So if we don't get some cool rules ourselves, pronto, we'll just be bogus, too. Yeah, and I just think it's like the perfect way, I just summarized it like the most essentially perfect way. The uh, uh, the reason why the uh, United States uh, has a constitution and our own set of laws in contrast to England from which we uh, divided.
0: Because we didn't want to be bogus. <laughs> yeah, you'll
4: be bogus too,
0: man. But Jason says the cool rules the U.S. government came up with haven't worked out so well for the environment. So in 2017, he filed a lawsuit against the state of Colorado on behalf of the Colorado River. I asked him to read a statement he made about the case at the time.
4: We're bringing this lawsuit to even the odds. Corporations today claim rights and powers that routinely overwhelm the efforts of people to protect the environment. Our judicial system recognizes corporations as persons, so why shouldn't it recognize the natural systems upon which we all depend as having rights as well?
0: The lawsuit asked a federal court to recognize the right of the Colorado River to, quote, exist, flourish, regenerate, be restored, and naturally evolve. Jason was inspired by what happened in New Zealand and shortly after in India, which granted two rivers living human status. Because the Colorado River couldn't appear in court, Jason needed to find some plaintiffs to stand in for the river, but it wasn't easy. Rights of nature is still a pretty radical idea in the United States. So he finally recruited a controversial environmental group called Deep Green Resistance. Longtime listeners may remember them from season one. The lawsuit made a splash. Lots of news outlets covered it. There was excitement for a split second.
4: And then um, invariably what happened, uh, and I should have just expected this, was the attorney general of Colorado at the time Uh, sought severe sanctions against me for signing this lawsuit seeking personhood for the river. Everything from serious monetary sanctions to disbarment.
0: The attorney general's office cited multiple issues with the lawsuit, claiming it was unconstitutional and that the plaintiffs didn't have standing, basically that they hadn't shown they had a legitimate injury, and said if Jason didn't voluntarily drop the lawsuit the plaintiffs could face penalties too.
4: So I have an ethical duty to go back and tell people involved that, hey, this could be, uh, these sanctions could extend to you. And then everything just broke apart.
0: Jason requested a dismissal of the suit. And just like that, it was over. Were you willing to risk disbarment yourself? I mean, is it really that the plaintiffs backed out, or were you also a little bit worried about the consequences for yourself? Hell yeah, I was
4: worried. I mean, I don't want to be disbarred. And ultimately, and this is ultimately my responsibility, and I completely accept that, is that it's just very difficult to make a stand.
0: Rights of nature is a contentious idea, to say the least. In the U.S. legal system, property rights and individual freedom reign, And giving nature the same rights as people and corporations challenges these deep-seated values.
4: And there's a lot of fear. And fear is just a part of uh, the experience in fighting for something new, the unknown.
0: Six years later, there are still some in Colorado who are fighting on behalf of rivers and trying a very different approach.
2: In my opinion, this creek is alive. You can hear it. You can see it moving. You can taste it. You can smell it. You can actually smell, you know, this, the, the smell of wa- moving water. And so, it, it, in our opinion, it is alive
0: and it has a right to exist. Gary Wachner is an environmental activist, scientist, and self-described river warrior.
2: I grew up on a muddy little river in central Illinois 60 years ago, and I've just uh, had a fondness for rivers ever since.
0: In the 1980s, he moved to Colorado and fell in love with the mountains and wild rivers. He reminds me of a lot of the outdoorsy guys I grew up with in Colorado, wearing a Patagonia parka patched with duct tape and a topaz earring in one ear. Today, Gary is the director of the nonprofit Save the Colorado.
2: Which protects and restores the Colorado River from the source to the sea.
0: Gary sees rights of nature as a strategy to protect the river, but today we're standing on the grassy bank of another waterway, Boulder Creek, in the small mountain town of Nederland.
2: Which uh, is the first community in the state of Colorado to designate rights of nature for the local uh, watershed and the creek that flows through town.
0: Two years ago, Gary helped the community pass a Rights of Nature Resolution for Boulder Creek after a mine upstream was accused of polluting the creek with heavy metals.
2: It was a bit of a um, rallying cry for the community to help speak for the creek and create more um, rights for the creek so that, again, it would have the right to flow and not be polluted.
0: Since then, he's helped pass resolutions for waterways in Grand Lake and Ridgeway, Colorado. They're not legally binding, but more of a guiding principle.
2: This is a friendly, gentle, you know, uh, hearts and minds kind of resolution. It would guide um, how the town would uh, address uh, issues that come before it, like development plans, pollution plans, anything like that, or plans to divert new or large amounts of water.
0: These non-binding resolutions are baby steps. They're much less contentious than the lawsuit Jason tried to push forward. And that's intentional, partly because of what happened to Jason and others who have fought for legal rights.
2: And what we're trying to do is, um, you know, slowly but surely in a friendly way to um, bring that concept into the hearts and minds of the people of the state of Colorado and the southwest United States and then eventually into the legal system.
5: Yeah, those resolutions are pretty pointless, in our opinion, just to be blunt.
0: Thomas Lindsay is senior legal counsel for the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights, a nonprofit organization based in Washington state.
5: You don't change the system of law by passing a non-binding resolution that says, wouldn't it be great if we changed the system of law? What you do is you change the system of law by changing the system of law. You actually write a new law that then gets adopted, which challenges those other layers of law. That's how it works.
0: Otherwise, he says...
5: There's no relevancy. You know, we have Chipmunk Appreciation Day non-binding resolutions. You know, people pass non-binding resolutions all the time at the municipal level, and they're meaningless. People forget about them 10 days after they're passed. I know, because I've worked on them in the early days.
0: Lest you think he's just cynical, Thomas is the go-to rights of nature guy. He helped write the very first rights of nature law in the world
5: which was passed by a small community in uh, Pennsylvania, a community of about 7,000 people just north uh, west of Philadelphia. And they were concerned about toxic waste dumping in the community that was going to affect not only the people that live there, but also the waterways, uh, the rivers that ran through the, the borough of Tamaqua.
0: He then went on to help Ecuador craft rights of nature language into its constitution— and has been involved with 35 municipal and tribal rights of nature laws in this country. Thomas agrees that hearts and minds need to be changed. Seeing nature as equal to and deserving of the same treatment as humans is a fairly new idea in Western culture, let alone the legal system.
5: I bet you didn't think we would be talking about Sir Francis Bacon today. (laughs) Uh, But Sir Francis Bacon once said that the goal of Western civilization was to torture nature on a rack to extract her secrets. So you have this Western European concept of nature as a thing, something to be used, like with the Colorado River, for example, the seven states fighting over how much water we're going to get from it without allowing the Colorado River to actually be in the room (laughs) to, to say this is what I need.
0: Thomas says many of these efforts have been led by indigenous communities, as in New Zealand, who have a different relationship with nature.
5: The reason why this work has been so difficult is that Western European vision is what reigns. And you're basically trying to change that by injecting this indigenous uh, wisdom into this European system of law.
0: Take what happened in Orange County, Florida, a few years ago, after voters approved a charter amendment to establish rights of nature for the area's wetlands. The amendment passed with overwhelming support, 89% of the vote.
5: So anybody who works on initiatives knows 51% of the vote is almost impossible, but 89% of the vote meant you had Trump folks, you had liberals, you had progressives, all coming together to protect these two rivers, the Wekaiva and Econlac River in Florida.
0: The amendment allowed people to file lawsuits on behalf of these waterways, and it pissed a lot of people off. Florida's Chamber of Commerce warned that adopting this, quote, fringe legal theory would set off an avalanche of litigation with dramatic implications for property rights and growth. A few months after it passed, some waterways, represented by a lawyer, sued a developer in the state, claiming that a planned housing development threatened wetlands and streams. But the judge tossed the case out, citing a new Florida law that prohibited granting legal rights to any part of the natural environment, signed just months before the Orange County vote.
5: Yeah, so Ron DeSantis uh, led the way with the legislature in Florida to pass a law preempting or attempting to preempt the passage of rights of nature laws at the local level. What's amazing to me is that it's been very difficult to even get the major environmental groups in the U.S. to talk about rights of nature. It's too controversial, too radical for them. Yet Governor DeSantis knows perfectly well how powerful these rights of nature laws can be because they're using legislative oxygen to actually try to cut off the ability of municipalities to pass them.
0: It's exactly this type of messiness that Gary Walkner is hoping to avoid with his gentler strategy. But Thomas says if people are serious about turning rights of nature into law, they have to get more aggressive. And he actually thinks Colorado is in a unique position to get something passed.
5: Colorado law provides kind of an anti-preemption provision, which says that local laws can be more stringent than state law in certain circumstances. And I think that gives a platform for moving forward, not just with the Colorado River, but with other ecosystems and rivers in Colorado.
0: How would the world look if the Colorado River had a legal right to exist? and to flow and to be clean and, you know, all the things that that come along with that rate.
5: It would be alive again. The Colorado River is more than just water. It's It's the river itself, it's the tributaries, it's life. And if the Colorado River had rights, it would be in the negotiating room with the other states. It's why Colorado freaked out the state When the lawsuit was brought back in 2017, uh, to the point of saying, not only does this need to be dismissed, but we need to punish the lawyer that brought it in the first place, because they understand how powerful it would be if the Colorado had a voice.
0: Six years after his attempt to get the Colorado River a shot at being in that negotiating room, Jason Flores-Williams has a few regrets.
4: Looking back on it, my goal was to just give the doctrine footing. You know, maybe just get a line in the dismissal saying, hey, well, the law's not there yet, but this could be a good fix. And then give somebody else or us the chance to build on that one line.
0: The law moves slowly. Decisions build on prior decisions. And Jason says a line in the dismissal could have given a small foothold to a future case. If you had a redo, would you try to see it through, at least to try to get that line? In the dismissal? I'll give you the really honest
4: answer. I'll give you a really honest answer because the easy thing for me to say is sure. And then try to – and then say, okay, and blame it on the circumstances. But I have come to the point in, in the United States where I question the purpose of doing anything. I do. I think that in the United States, consumerism and capitalism are just so entrenched. And the dialogue is so inherently stupid that there's a sort of futility in it.
0: Jason is based in Mexico City now, where he says there's more willingness to consider rights of nature arguments. And he's pretty pessimistic about any significant movement happening in the U.S. legal system. But Thomas Lindsay disagrees.
5: The sky's the limit here. I mean, law changes in all kinds of ways all the time.
0: He says he advised Jason back in 2017 and wishes he'd stuck it out.
5: Lawyers for the civil rights movement were sanctioned all the time. We have to get used to that. We have to understand that our law license is a privilege. But uh, there are times when it makes sense to give up that law license for certain reasons, for certain times. I think we're in one of those times. And it means being courageous. We need more people who are willing to, to stay in there and finish it to the end.
0: Coming up
1: the adults tend to look at you like this is an idea that came to you at midnight when you had tinfoil on your head
0: a tribal lawyer stands up for nature after the break hey it's amy i've been reporting for marketplace for more than 20 years now and hosting how we survive for the past two years as a journalist, I have a commitment to you, to uncover the truth, bring it to light, and hold the powerful accountable. Support how we survive and other journalism like this with a donation today at marketplace.org/survive or click the link in our show notes. Last year, Jack Fiander, a lawyer and a member of the Yakima Nation, fought for the rights of nature on behalf of another tribe.
1: I was made an honorary member of the Soxowattle tribe and given the name in their language of Duchtukwiatkan, which unfortunately for me translates into protector of all that is sacred, which put a heck of a obligation on me to live up to
0: that the Soxuatl tribe filed a lawsuit in tribal court against the city of Seattle. The tribe argued that salmon, which are sacred to the Soxuatl, have a right to exist and that the hydroelectric dams on the Skagit River were harming the fish by damaging their habitat and blocking their passage upstream and, in turn, harming the tribe.
1: Tribal members rely on salmon for their food Uh, Sometimes they sell some to buy gas from their cars for their economy. But also it's a cultural thing because the tribe has a treaty which guaranteed them the right to fish.
0: Earlier this year, Seattle settled and agreed to create passages in the river for the salmon, though it didn't acknowledge the salmon's rights. Jack says the city hasn't begun building the passages, so he's not celebrating just yet.
1: Still cautious. Tribal nations are very experienced in having promises made to them which were not kept.
0: Jack says he thinks the city settled because the licenses for the dams were up for renewal at the same time the tribe's lawsuit was getting a lot of press, and Seattle's reputation was on the line. But Jack is pragmatic. He says the motivation isn't what really matters.
1: I think the way to convince people that you should support the rights of salmon is to appeal and to and present it to their Western views. Not that you're recognizing the salmon's rights, but you're recognizing the salmon rights because that protects your rights. You protect nature then you'll be able to exploit it for over a longer period of time.
0: Oof. It's pretty depressing. But Jack has been fighting this fight for a long time. We're focusing this season of our podcast on the Colorado River and drought in the Southwest. And I'm wondering if you were trying to protect the Colorado River, you know, which serves seven states, two countries, and 30 tribal nations, provides water to 40 million people. How would you approach that? Do you think it could work for a whole river basin?
1: Well, oftentimes I'm inclined to take off my attorney hat and just speak as a tribal elder, because in that capacity, I'm entitled to kind of scold people.
0: And and I
1: guess I would say Western water law in the United States has the same problem we see in in the rights of nature. Water law in this country is based on taking the water out of the ground or out of the river for your own use. That's how you get a water right, by taking it away from nature and using it yourself. And it's sort of like rewards that someone who uses water because the earlier you use it and the more you take, the greater your right is.
0: It's known as the doctrine of prior appropriation. It's a bit like finders keepers.
1: And that's just wrong because it encourages People and cities and governments and agriculture to use more water than they need, because if you don't use it, someone else gets to use it and it treats the water like property.
0: But Jack says attitudes are changing when he talks to groups about the idea that nature has inherent rights that need protection.
1: The adults... Tend to look at you like this is an idea that came to you at midnight when you had tinfoil on your head, you know, from, <laughs> from from outer space. It's it's too new. But what gives me hope is that the young people and the students, unlike the older people, they get it, you know, because arms to nature uh, is something that's that's going to affect them deeply in their future. And they see it with the climate change. So I guess it's the young people that give me hope because they, they really get it.
0: After spending months witnessing all the drama over this dwindling resource downstream, the only thing left to do was go see it for myself, where it begins. Toward the end of the summer, my husband Alex and I go for a hike we've been wanting to do for a long time to the headwaters of the Colorado River. He's a landscape photographer who's been documenting the effects of development and climate change on the Colorado River Basin for the last decade. We're in Rocky Mountain National Park. And as soon as we set out from the Colorado River trailhead, nature asserts itself. All right, well, our first obstacle is a herd of elk blocking our trail. You know, they can be aggressive, so... Can we just be like, "Uh, excuse us, (laughs) pardon me? (laughs) There's a whole living, breathing ecosystem around this river, including this herd of mama elk with their babies.
2: We're totally surrounded by them now.
0: What do we do if they charge? Curl up in a ball? They don't charge, thankfully. With our heads down, we scurry past and continue on, passing babbling creeks, rocky cliffs and so many creatures. A pine marten scampering through the forest, a moose with her calf. Cute little waddling bird just (laughs) waddling up the trail. Until seven miles later, finally exhausted, we reach a wet, grassy meadow. I
2: guess this is it right here.
0: We're about 10,000 feet above sea level, surrounded by rocky peaks and a bluebird sky. Wow. Here it is. We finally reached the headwaters of the Colorado River. How cool. It's so beautiful. Alex goes over to read a metal sign at the edge of the meadow where water seeps up from the mud where we're standing.
2: In the valley below lies a tiny stream called the Colorado River. It has barely begun its travels, but six miles upstream lies that magical point where water (laughs) begins its downstream journey to the sea we got to hike six more miles? No. (laughs) A course of 1,400 miles to the Gulf of California.
0: So this marker is sort of standing in for the headwaters, which is really just this whole area, right? It's like gradually filtering down this valley into the Colorado. To the southwest, we can see the Never Summer Mountains. There's still some snow on them. It's kind of amazing to think that the... Snow that's up there, a little bit of it. And the snow that was here in the winter and spring behind us. Behind us is some of it reaching all the way to the Gulf of California.
2: Well <laughs> the problem is, is any of it? none of it reaches the Gulf of California anymore. Or the Sea of Cortez, depending who you're asking. Right? Yeah. The last bits get used for farming in Mexico. And, you know, can't throw stones. Most of it's used for farming in California and Arizona, so...
0: So we need a Sharpie to edit the sign. (laughs) If the river had rights, would it flow all the way to the Gulf again? Would people be forced to rethink how they use water so there might still be enough for future generations? And who would get to speak for the river and decide all these things? It's kind of an emotional experience being up here. I was born and raised in Colorado. I grew up drinking this water without even really thinking about where it came from. We have messed with this river so much. I can't help but feel bad for it. Even up here, a lot of the water that would flow into the Colorado is diverted by a ditch built in the 1890s to supply farms and cities to the east. And it's sad to think about how much strife this river has caused downstream. It's not the river's fault, it's the people's fault. And now it's our job, as much as we can, to fix it. That's it for this season. Thanks for listening and sharing the show. We've loved reading your reviews and comments. Keep them coming. How We Survive is hosted by me, Amy Scott. Haley Hirschman and I wrote this episode. Our production team also includes Lena Fonsa, Courtney Bergseeker, and Sophia pulisa Carr. Help this season from Peter Balanon-Rosen and Marketplace reporter Savannah Marr. Our senior producer is Caitlin Esch. Our editor is Jasmine Romero. Sound design and original music by Chris Julin, and audio engineering by Brian Allison. Our theme music is by Wonderly. Bridget Bodner is director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is executive director. Neil Scarborough is vice president and general manager of Marketplace.